Podcast.com. Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is a new show hosted by me, Asha. Bushwick Junction is a show about life's inflection points. It's about the crossroads in our lives, which paths we choose when we reach them, and where those choices lead us or don't. We'll talk about the decisions we agonized over and the decisions we didn't even realize we were making until years after we made them. We'll talk about how we decide things, how we weigh our options, or how we tap into our intuitions. And we'll talk about the degree to which our choices matter. Do we have any control over the things that alter our fate, or do we end up in the same place no matter which roads we take? On each show, I'll have a different guest tell me about all the big decisions they've ever made in their life in order. We'll start with birth, fast forward to their first big decision, and map out the roads their lives the road their lives have taken as a series of these inflection points or junctions. So with that, I'll introduce my guest for the day. This is the first time that I'm having a friend on the show. Not that to my past guests, you're not now my friends, but this is the first time I have someone that I like know IRL. And this came up because I was at lunch with this person and telling her the idea for the show And she was like, yo, I made a crazy decision when I was 14 and I could talk about it. So this was like the first guest I ever had locked down and it's all happening right now. Uh, Okay, that was enough of an intro. Vanessa, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about what you do, who you are and where you feel like you're at in life right now. No pressure. Hi, I'm Vanessa. Um, friend of Asha's. I work at Pandora Radio as an artist marketing manager. I've been there. Um, I've been there about three years, and in, in the role that I'm currently currently in, I've been about one year. Um, the state that I currently find myself in at this point in life is probably like confused 26 year old. Um, I've said to a lot of people in the last like six months that I felt like I knew what I wanted to do in life better when I was 17 than I do right now. So real. Um, so yeah, like kind of like I'm just enjoying the ride with a sense of direction, but not entirely. That's such a good description that you just gave me <laughs> I, and, and a relatable one. I feel very similarly. Um, okay. So the first question on this show is tell me about the circumstances, circumstances into which you were born 
um, so what your what your family of origin was like and what a life might have looked like for someone who was born like you like how like, like predict it before yeah yeah okay um so i was born in 1991 in boston massachusetts and um i was born into a, a semi you know pre-established family my my dad uh was married once before he met my mom and had two kids um this was my mom's first marriage i was her first child um so we were a family of five once i came into the picture and um my dad my dad was born um overseas he was born in brazil um to a family of british expats so there was kind of this pre-context of in our family of living overseas and having an international background and um my mom uh, is mexican-american she's from california she moved out to boston um to work for the boston globe and uh has been there i think she moved out when she was like 25 26 um and has stayed ever since cool i didn't know that yeah um so i, I think you know not knowing the life that i had um that my family probably would have there was definitely going to be some component of moving around uh, just based on the way that my father was brought up and the, the kind of um, inclination towards travel that my mother had. Uh, that was definitely going to happen. And yeah. it, it did. Yeah. Um, and my siblings were, uh, one is 10 years older than me and one is 14 years older than me. Um, so there's been a gap in age um, always and kind of some distance because of that. Um so yeah, I guess if I had to predict it, it would kind of shaped up the way that it did end up. Kind yeah. of was pre-written in some ways. Fascinating. I didn't know that about your family. I didn't know that you had older siblings. And I remember you were talking at dinner a few weeks ago or last week about like your father and Brazil. And mm-hmm. there, there's like even one more layer of complication, right? Like he, what, he was born in Brazil, two British expats, mm-hmm. but there's one other thing, right? They well, they um, were third generation. Uh, he was third generation of this British family um, that was born in Brazil, and so our family kind of established. So he's pretty Brazilian. Yes, yeah. I mean, he's he's Brazilian citizen. He's also a British citizen. He's an American citizen. Fascinating. And I have friends that joke that he works for like MI6, and we just don't know it. <laughs> um, but yeah, there is definitely a, a sort of a history of. Um, background like travel and diversity in my ancestry cool and that's like literally you wear that on your sleeve you have a, a tattoo of it i i do literally on my wrist a tattoo of the globe cool so we can talk a little bit about your childhood i yeah i don't know much about you as a kid but i eventually want to make our way to the first big decision you ever made and the one that got us excited for you to be on the show okay. uh when you were 14 um, well, as a kid, so we actually at Thanksgiving, my family discovered a box of VHS tapes uh-huh. in our basement because a pipe burst and, uh, Irene was there when it happened. And like, we all scrambled down in the basement and we're trying to retrieve all these boxes of, uh, VHS tapes. And I was like, what? This is history. We need to digitize this. I was a history major. So I was like, we need to preserve uh-huh. and document and save. And, um, so I immediately found a place local that would, uh, move these files to digital files. And we got them made and they were ready at Christmas. So I was watching them at Christmas and That's they were, perfect. yes, they were videos of me as a kid. It was like preschool. 
um, like my preschool boyfriend. And preschool boyfriend? <laughs> no. I was very determined. I walked up to him in the playground and was like, will you be my boyfriend? Oh and, my God. Uh, this one video was just a video of like us on play dates together. If like we were still together and we we're going to get married, it would have been like the perfect video to show at a wedding. That's so funny. Um, but watching all these videos of myself as a kid, I definitely, my siblings definitely picked on me a lot. I got a fair share of bullying from them. And in my head, I'd always been like, they just picked on me. That's what siblings do. I didn't deserve it. But watching these tapes, I was like, oh, I was kind of like a little princess and a pain in the ass. Interesting. Um, I just uh, wanted to get my way. There's one video where like, my sister was playing with one of my toys. And I was like, that's mine. You can't play with that. And I got really fussy. And my dad was like, we'll have none of that, Vanessa. And I just like made a little whimpering noise and ran off. My brother was the, the cameraman in our family. And okay. so he was following me. And I ran into the living room and dramatically dove face first onto the couch and just started like crying and whining. And my brother was like zooming in on my face, like trying wow. to annoy me. And I was like, wow, I was such a little bitch. This is like, you've like always known what you wanted and like fucking went after it. <laughs> I guess so. Wow. You um, still have that. You're like that. Okay. I hope I'm not as like as much of a bratty <laughs> a princess, princess, but, um, but yeah, it was interesting to watch that and, and see, see myself now as like a 26 year old. Um, and, so, yeah, I think that I definitely knew what I wanted, but I, I think things to a certain degree came easy to me. Um, I definitely grew up in uh, a life of privilege. Uh, my family, we moved around a lot. Uh, the first move happened, I think, when I was like one or two. We moved to Rochester, New York. And um, when I was three, we moved to Palo Alto uh, to be near my mom's family. And then when I was four, we moved to London. Uh, that was our first, um, you know, our first big international move. And we were there for four years. When I was eight, I moved to Tokyo. We were there for six years. Were these moves for your dad's work? Yes, they were for my dad. He did um, he did international marketing. And given his international background, was very comfortable uh, moving the family around. And, and this is actually stuff I've only recently started talking to my mom about. You know, how do you make those decisions when you have three kids and a dog and you decide to just pick up and move? Um, and you know, it was for his job. I should have your mom on my show. I <laughs> know. Uh, it was for his job, not for hers. What does that mean for her career? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and as a kid, I didn't have any say in any of this. And, uh, this kind of goes to what you and I were talking about before we started the show. You, you don't really, you're not cognizant of the decisions that are made around you when you're a kid because you just kind of go with the flow. It's like you go to school, you come home, you eat dinner and, um, you do activities and then you, go to high school and you apply for college. And it's just like the structure of life that you follow. Um, not necessarily decisions that you make yourself. Um, so the first decision that I realized was mine when I was talking to you many months ago about junctions. Uh, when I was 14 years old, we moved back to the U.S., uh, to Boston. Wait, wait, wait. I want to talk more about living abroad. So, okay. Sorry. Okay. No. I do want to get to that, but it's Great. so fascinating. So you... Tokyo, London at four. Yeah. Tokyo at seven. Yeah. At eight. Yeah. And then, and then what? And then back to Boston at, at 14. So we so were, lived in Tokyo for seven years. Six years. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Do you like it there? Do you I have did. a special relationship with it? I think, it, yeah, I definitely do. Um, it's really weird growing up overseas. There's this, um, this concept theory, uh, category called, uh, third culture kid. Yeah. TCK. You know it? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, it's something I only discovered when I was back in the U.S., but I mm. completely identified with it. Um, the premise of it is going to be super rough, uh, but the premise of it is that, you know, you grow up with maybe two cultures in your home, um, you know, one paternal or maternal. Um, for me, my dad was British. My mom was American, Mexican-American, so there's like an extra layer there. And then um, you grow up physically in a, in a separate culture from both of those, mm-hmm. uh, which is exactly what happened when I moved to Tokyo. And I adopted, um, you know, I adopted Japanese lifestyle. And even I went to an international school, so I was still following a, a Western curriculum and was with a really diverse group of kids, and they were all all women's. So I always, I've always been in an all female education, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, at I'm some excited point. to talk about that. Um, Wait, is your Japanese like really good? No, okay. <laughs> no, I've lost what little I had of it gotcha. um, because I just you don't practice, you yeah, know, once hard. you leave the country and. I am familiar with the concept of third culture kids because my parents are different races. And then I I grew up in Miami, which Mm -hmm. is like another fucking country. It's like a country unto itself. It is. So, yeah, I I definitely feel like I'm a third culture kid, too. It's great once you find that and you're like, oh, my God, that is my identity. Yeah. Like it exists. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Uh, Okay, so you get back to the U.S. And what's going on? Um, So while we were in Japan... Uh, the six years that we were there, I joined a swim team and uh, I did it because all my friends were doing it in like third, end of third grade, fourth grade. And uh, it was part of this Tokyo American Club, you know, expat community. Uh, it was like the cool thing to do, join the swim team. And I just really like, it became my life. I ended up swimming all six years there um, and it was really good. Like I, contrary to what I thought was told by coaches and my parents, like I was really good and I was winning races and I actually outgrew the team that I was on at the Tokyo American club and ended up going to swim at the all boys school in Tokyo, um, which had an, it had a co-ed team, but it was technically the St. Mary's boys school team. Um, and even there I moved up lanes when you're on a swim team, lanes are divided by speed and like skill. Basically, you know, the faster you are, you get in a fast lane. Um, and I quickly moved up to the fast lane. I remember the day when the head coach put me in the fastest lane with like these boys that were probably going to go Olympic. And I was like, I'm not ready for this. And he was like, you are get in the lane. Wow. Um, so, and I, I developed some really strong friendships through these teams. I had mentors and my coaches, I was doing individual coaching. Um, I was doing two a day practices. It was like very defining. And this was right around the same time, the Olympics where Michael Phelps, you know, we were introduced so to Michael Phelps. And, yeah, swimming was it was the hot thing to do. Um, and we came back to the U.S. And I was already very bitter that we were coming back to the U.S. Okay. I didn't want to leave Tokyo. Again, a decision that was out of my hands. Um, and we came back and I, I really didn't like, I didn't like the, the neighborhood we lived in. We lived in Newton. Um, and I was going to go to another all-women's uh high school and it was incredibly preppy a very classic new england preppiness and i was not preppy i like i listened i was like a hot topic kid i like yeah yeah (laughs) uh, i won't say emo but like it was you know yeah leaning that way um pretty into paramore (laughs) right exactly yeah evanescence and yeah some 41 um yeah so we came back to the u.s and immediately before we even left i had coaches in tokyo that were like we're gonna set you up with 
interviews and trials and you'll, you know, check out this team and this team. And it was really hard. It was like a really hard thing when you're 14 to just, and you've only known, you know, I think between the ages of 18, uh, eight to 14, you really are more cognizant of stuff. You just yeah, like you become a person, you become a person. Yeah. And to leave that was really hard, even though it was part of life uh, living overseas. Um, so I had a trial, we came back to the U S and I had a trial at like one of the best teams in the Boston area. Um, and my mom drove me and I was wearing like all the gear from my last team. And, uh, this was another co-ed team. And, um, I think it was at like a school or something, but first thing I, I remember noticing is they were all white and there was like no diversity. They all looked the same to me, like these blonde girls and blonde boys and, um, they immediately stared me down as soon as I walked onto the deck. And it was just like, really, it was very intimidating. Um, I got in the pool. I spoke to the coach. I got in the pool. I swam some laps and um, got out. And I was just like, no, this isn't, I can't do this. This isn't for me. This isn't my old team. Uh, it's not my old coach. And I think we got, my mom and I got in the car and I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Like it's done. So that's interesting because you just didn't like that team, though. But it, it it was like all of them. It was it was all of it. It was like I couldn't swim, um, outside of, yeah, outside of my team. I couldn't swim outside of Tokyo, and it was. I mean, if I had stuck with swimming, if we had stayed in Tokyo, or if I had even just joined that team, um, swimming would have become, you know, the way that you know athletes in high school and, and college would have become a, a driver for where I went to school. I would have looked at division one. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I was this good, but I had coaches in Tokyo that were like starting to get into maybe training Olympic. And I, there's no way in hell that I, I could have been an Olympic swimmer, but like that was the level of skill that I was looking at. So I knew if I stuck with swimming, it would come to take over my life. And I just didn't want to do it with that in these circumstances. That's crazy. You're 14 years old. Okay. So you tell your mom, I'm not going to do this. And what did she say? She was pretty upset. Yeah. Um, I think she said stuff along the lines of, do you want to think about it? Um, I don't know if she cried. I feel like I remember her like getting a little teary up, tear, teared up about it. Was but, she shocked or did she see it? Coming? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I've never asked her that. Uh, she, my guess is she probably saw it coming. Well, were, were you shocked? Like, were you like, was it a turn? No, of the... it was, I was weirdly calm and like certain and like, like I had, didn't never second guessed it. I didn't think I made a mistake. Damn. Um, when I think about it, whenever I did think about it, and even when I think about it now, it's more in the context of, you know, what would have happened. So like, I kind of, I feel like I kind of know what would have happened, but I don't regret it. Um, yeah. So, when I think about big decisions like that, where you are struck with a moment of clarity and especially decisions that relate to what your future is going to look like, like ones where you can see multiple paths laid out. I think in my life, I've approached those decisions like I'm choosing between potential versions of myself. Yeah, totally. Do you feel like that happened? Yeah, that's ex I think exactly what I was looking at i think i i saw this team and i saw these kids and i was like is this something i'll become like will i wow. will i jump into this team in this pool and be friends with all these blonde people yeah be friends with all these people and like get really preppy and like go to j crew and all that stuff and um nothing wrong with j crew by the way i've definitely shopped there <laughs> but um 
Yeah, I think it, it, I saw um, a version of myself I didn't like. And I liked the version of myself in Japan in, with the team that I had there. Wow. Um, so yeah. what were the versions of yourself that you were envisioning instead? Like, were you, were you just not picking one route or were you like, you know what, I'm not going to do swimming, but I think I'm really interested in this other thing. Yeah. I think that I, I didn't, I didn't have another thing in mind. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I actually spent the next two to three years of high school testing out different sports. I was on the basketball team, not successful. You're like for, four and a half feet tall. Exactly. For <laughs> anyone who doesn't know me, <laughs> um, that's the context. I, uh, at that point, I'm now super into running, but I hadn't been prior to that. I was actually when I was um, when I was in middle school in Tokyo, uh, a bunch of my friends joined the track team, and it was really another like hot sport to do. And I really wanted to do it, but I had really bad um, like leg cramps when I was a kid. I would just like my legs would seize up, and it was I think it's like a potassium deficiency. I'm not sure, but um, and I told my mom I wanted to join the track team. I was really fast. The PE coaches said to my mom, like, she can run a six minute mile. Like, we'd love to have her. She's great. And my mom was like, no, like, you're going to get shin splints. You're going to bust up your knees. You're still growing. And uh, in retrospect, I definitely agree with her because that's what ended up happening to my friends. Um, But so I wasn't allowed to join the track team. And that was something that I was just like, never approached again. I was like, well, I'm not good enough for the track team or I don't want to go there so in high school i did basketball i was on the varsity softball team 100 percent as a bench warmer (laughs) (laughs) barely ever made it if i did make it out there i was in the outfield um i was on the soccer team two years in a row um and then i ended up running with the cross-country team towards senior year but um but yeah i just tried out a bunch of different things didn't have anything in mind uh definitely oh and then our high school got our, our own swim team when I was a junior and a senior. So I got back into the pool for them, but it was definitely a completely different level than, you know, it was way more beginner kind of like chill. Yeah. Just whatever. Was it like, Oh, I, I think a lot on this show and in general about the level of reversible that decisions are right. So mm-hmm. like, am I picking up correctly that if you stop swimming at a like pre Olympic level, you can't right. just like, start again yeah once you decide to stop you're not ever gonna get it back you miss a window for sure um i think and and i think that was also just a big part of my decision was um i got a taste of it when we were in tokyo with my like individual coaching sessions and you know especially watching the olympics you see that this consumes an athlete's life like this is your your diet it's your daily routine it's your friends um and, and at that point in Tokyo, all of the friends that I had joined the swim team with initially had dropped off. They'd stopped swimming. Mm-hmm. So I was the only one that stuck with it. And um, I just didn't didn't want one thing to define me or dominate my life the way that I thought swimming had the potential to. Interesting. Yeah. That, did that come to you that moment in the car or did you sort of explain it that way later? I think it came to me somewhere between leaving Tokyo and arriving in the U.S. Right. Um I think that, you know, I've moved around enough that you see moves as an opportunity to reinvent yourself to some degree or to start fresh. Um, and I didn't want to come back to the U.S. I wanted things to be on my terms, I mm-hmm. think was a big thing is that I didn't have control over where we went or what school I went to. And 
this I kind of I had control over. It wasn't like my mom was like, you must swim. Like I'm mm-hmm. forcing you to get back in that pool. Um, she, both her and my dad were like, okay, you don't want to do it. You're, I, I think, not so much wasting talent, but yeah, like kind of disappointed. Yeah. Um, but I just needed, I needed some control over the situation. Wow. Yeah. A 14 year old who's been kind of whisked around the whole country or the whole globe <laughs> for their whole life, finally having the ability to say what their life is going to look like. That does yeah. feel like a really, really understandable outcome for that moment in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking a lot right now about like the decision to let one thing define you because mm-hmm. when you say that, I'm like, yeah, totally. Like it sounds awful to let one thing define you. Right. But, and like, I think in New York, I think like maybe big cities, people our age, well-roundedness is such a a virtue. Like everyone seeks yeah. to have so much shit going on and like know all the different things in all of the different realms of culture totally. and like have a great job and a side hustle. Just the side <laughs> hustle as a concept, like you want a side hustle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it feels like the most like the most famous people have let one thing to define them. Like Michael Phelps has let one thing define him his whole life. Yeah. And that's crazy. Like most of the people we admire in daily life are extremely well-rounded. But most of the people we admire like as celebrities, like who have reached that level, mm-hmm. like they're in the public eye, they got there by not being well-rounded. Right. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, it's a focus, right? Like you focus on one thing and you commit to it and you let it elevate you. Hopefully that's the whole um is to just accelerate and ascend. And then you sort of bring in the other aspects that round you out. Um, not to say that, you know, you can't be successful or an icon by starting with the, you know, rounded out things. But yeah, but yeah, it's true. I think that that, that focus and that like spotlight on one thing really freaked me out. Yeah, that's so super interesting. A new thing I'm going to think about, I don't think we can talk about it right now because nothing's coming to mind. Like who are the most well-rounded celebrities? <laughs> Yeah. Franco, James Franco, pretty well-rounded. Oh, gosh. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I think Angelina Jolie. Oh, yeah. Just, she's got a lot of shit going on. Yeah. Cool. Really. Yeah. Good Good. Good topic for conversation. <laughs> if anyone wants to call in and tell me some well-rounded celebrities, uh, I don't know, call myself. The, the radio station has a phone number, but like, I don't know where it is. Okay. So, um, that's a, that's a really crazy thing to have happen for a 14-year-old. Uh, proud of you. Proud of 14-year-old Vanessa. <laughs> the next big decision that people often, or most people's first big decision, I would say, is where they decide to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this obviously big decision before that. Uh, and I, it, I, the, the, the second junction that you mentioned to me in prepping mm-hmm. for the show was deciding to stay at a college. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's like <laughs> framed differently than most people yeah. frame that. And I want to actually get into your decision of where to go to college, too. Okay. Um, So my decision to go to college, uh, I wanted to go to New York. When I was 13 or 14, I was like 13, um, we did a trip. My family did a trip to New York, my first trip to New York. Actually, I was younger than 13. I think I was like 10-ish. And it was in the middle of a blizzard, and um, we were going for New Year's, and um it was just the most magical experience for me. It was everything that you see in New York in the movies where, you know, it was charming. You had these like 
classic New York cabbies that were like talking shit. And um, we, I remember we came out, we took a train from Boston to New York and we came out of Penn Station. And um, this one, uh, the guy who was directing all the taxis out of Penn Station, I guess he was like really frustrated with the taxis or something. And he just yells, who let the dogs out? <laughs> and then these two girls who were walking by goes, who, 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 oh, who? It was hilarious. And of course, when I was like 10 and that that song had just come out, I was like, this is amazing. I must live here. You witnessed like a classic New York moment. Exactly. First thing out Penn Station. Yeah, it was bizarre and wonderful and strange. And um, love that story. Yeah, it was. That was the moment I fell in love with New York. And so when I was picking colleges, I was like, well, obviously, I'm going to go to NYU or Columbia. Um, I was not necessarily the greatest student, uh, especially my transcript leading up to high school, uh, I swam a lot and I socialized a lot. And I was probably like a C student average um, up until eighth grade. And then I came to high school in the U.S., which was a college prep school, very intimate private school. And those teachers definitely hounded my ass. And I got up to like the honor roll. And um, but I was not, you know, anywhere near Columbia level. And my SATs were absolutely awful. Um but those were my top picks. And then I was looking at schools surrounding the New York area. So I looked at Bard, which was really bizarre. Um, I looked at Sarah Lawrence. I looked at um, Fordham, Vassar. I uh, was really trying to stick. You know, if I couldn't be in New York City, then I wanted to be a bus right away. Yeah. And uh, my college, one of my college counselors said, you should really apply to some all-women's colleges. They were like, you've been in an all-female education since you were four years old. Yeah, wait, why did your... Was that a big thing for your parents? Like, did they want you in an all-girls school? I think that um, my mom went to an all-girls school growing up, and my dad went to an all-boys school growing up. Um, I'm not sure if the, you know, if the gender was a big deal, but Catholic school uh, was. Gotcha. And I went to Catholic school um, starting when we moved to London. When I was four years old. They start school a little earlier in the UK. Um, I went straight in at four and it was an all girls Catholic school. And then also once you start moving overseas and you're looking at different schooling systems uh, for expats, then you typically tend to find, uh, you know, Catholic or Jesuit institutions that have been in place for a long time, you know, missionaries and whatnot um so it was easy to keep me in, in in the same system so i entered a sacred heart school when i was eight years old in tokyo it was called issh um and then when we moved to the u.s i i went to the sacred heart school in boston so it was Got just it, it was just a transfer yeah i didn't have to reapply so at the sacred heart school in boston the the college guidance counselor was like you have an all-female education background for at this point 18 years mm-hmm. or sorry 12 years um you should definitely apply and i was like okay cool i'm gonna apply but there's no way in hell that i'm going to another all-girls college or all go all-girls academic institution that was like probably number one on my list was get into a classroom with, <laughs> with boys, boys. <laughs> fascinating um, wait i'm so curious where this is gonna go uh so uh I applied to 12 schools, I think, and April rolled around. I got accepted to six, waitlisted at three, and rejected from three. One of those rejections was NYU. And that was 
absolutely devastating. I remember getting that letter and reading it in the kitchen and just like thinking everything was going to fall apart. Um, one of the acceptances was Bryn Mawr College. And I remember when I got the acceptance into Bryn Mawr College, they sent me like a video, personalized video that uh, it was an email acceptance. I opened it. The video was like, hey, Vanessa, congrats. Your class of 2013. Wow. Um, and I, my mom was doing laundry in the basement. And I went downstairs and I was like, oh, I, just so you know, I got into Bryn Mawr College. And she was like, what? She was like, that's a really good school. Where did your mom go to college? Uh, she went to San, Santa Clara undergrad. Okay. And then Stanford grad school. Cute. And um, she got really excited. Yeah. She oh. was like, that's a really good school. She was kind of surprised, <laughs> I think, when I got in. Um and I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to go, but you know, it's cool. Another acceptance. And, uh, I also got into Sarah Lawrence and one of my really good friends was already at Sarah Lawrence and I really wanted to follow him there. He was a year above me. And, um, another one of my, how did you, how did you have friends who were boys? Um, how did I meet? His name was Kari. He went to Roxbury Latin. Um, I don't know how we met. I, we were, he and, was friends with a, a girl who was a year or two younger than me. And I was really good friends with her and we went to shows together. So we just hopped shows. the Boston music scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't remember how I met him, but you just like you meet people, um, friends, brothers, etc. Oh, and we had like dances and stuff, like socials at high schools. Um, so he was he was at Sarah Lawrence and it just seemed so hip and so cool. And I had toured the college and I thought it was great. It was only a train ride away into the city. Um, and one of my other best friends who was the same year as me, she was going to go to Sarah Lawrence. And so I told my parents, I was like, I made my decision. I'm going to go to Sarah Lawrence. And Sarah Lawrence has boys. Uh, it does. Yeah, okay. It used to be all women. Okay, okay. It's like a 70, 30 ratio. Got it. <laughs> um, and my parents had done the tour with me and they were not thrilled with that school. Um, they don't have a grading system at Sarah Lawrence and I, you know, it's been a while. I could, this could have changed or I could be wrong, but they didn't, they didn't have a grading system. They don't declare majors. There's some sort of, um, it was just all very, a different structure from your traditional academic structure. Hippie shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really liked that. Um, also the alumni that had gone there was really cool. Um, I can't remember a lot of them off the top of my head. I think like yeah, JJ cool Abrams. School. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, and so I told my parents I wanted to go to Sarah Lawrence and they essentially told me that they would not support me if I went to that school. Wow. What, because um, of the grades? Mostly? Yeah, but I think because of the structure, the, the academic structure of the school, they didn't think it would be conducive to, you know, um, learning. Yeah, le <laughs> learning and getting a degree and using that degree and, you know, having a career and whatnot. It just wasn't for them. Were they like, were you the type of? adolescent whose parents were worried about you like did you signal causes <laughs> no. for concern or were you like a good kid no definitely not i was a good kid i didn't party i didn't drink i didn't do drugs gotcha um whereas my siblings were very much the opposite gotcha. so my parents knew how to you know you were like detect. the easy one yeah they had they had been through the ringer before and um so yeah they told me that and i was just devastated i like didn't know how to handle that obviously you know fortunate enough for my parents to be able to fund my education and I just didn't really have a choice. Um, so I ended up and I don't, I don't know actually how it got to this point, but I ended up accepting my, uh, Bryn Mawr college offer. Uh, I think 
ultimately that was the it was the closest to an urban center and that was a priority although philly had never really been on the map for me my brother went to temple um in philly and he did not like it but he was in philly kind of a grimy stage of philly's history um in like the early thousands late 90s Mm -hmm. um so yeah it ended up being Bryn Mawr College and uh August rolled around and I packed up my stuff and drove down there and I thought it was the weirdest place ever (laughs) I thought it was so strange thought the women there were strange um I moved into my hall and uh I liked my roommate she we like became friends on Facebook before the semester started um, Irene, our mutual friend Irene, was on my hall. Um, we had uh, just about, gosh, 12 girls um, on our freshman hall. And we all bonded pretty immediately over the strangeness of Oh, so everyone school. thought it was weird. Yeah, everyone was kind of like, this is interesting. Huh. Um, I don't know if everyone felt the same level that I did where I was like, I absolutely fucking hate this. And my parents drove away from the school and I said, was waving goodbye to them on the sidewalk, just sobbing. Really? Did not want to be there. Oh my God. Wait, Um, so did they know like you all got there and you were like, I'm not into this. And they were like, well, too bad. Bye. Yeah. Essentially. Um, They were like, well, this is it. And they, you know, they did say they were like, just go for a year, like see how the first year goes. You can always transfer out. Which, you know, people say that, but... <laughs> They've never lived through the war. Like, freshman year can be just, like, yeah. life-ruining. Also, the whole transfer process is just another college application process, and that's equally as heart-wrenching if you don't get in. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, went through freshman year. Uh, Bryn Mawr uh, has a lot of traditions, and they were... They were strange. They were, were weird. intimidating. Yeah, they were weird. Can you, like, give me an example? <laughs> Um, sworn to uh, secrecy on some of them. I'm not really. It's just that, uh, let's see. Um, trying to think of some that, well, after a lot of traditions, there's uh, a run across a part of campus called the Marion Green. It's like the outside area. Um, so after every tradition, you go to these steps that are out in front of a dorm and you sing a bunch of songs uh, uh, that are, yeah. Sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> And then during singing those songs, um, there's usually a uh, a strip run. So uh, a bunch of women, it's bunch optional. Of women getting naked. A bunch of women get naked and run across campus. Cool. And I was like, what the fuck? Oh is my god. This? Okay, so wait, I'm dying to know. By the end of college, did you get into it? Were you like no. singing the songs, stripping naked, running around? No. You no. just never got into it. I did not get into it. I applied transfer to yeah. USC. Right. Okay. Um. And you were like, get me out of here. I need to be warm yeah, and clothed and I with did, men. I did, however, well, there, so there were men because we had classes at Haverford and Swarthmore. Um, so it was definitely not as isolating as I thought it was going to be. Um, but by the end of that year, I did have really special friendships. Um, our entire floor bonded immediately. And um, I've met, a, you know, I've talked to other people that were at our school. I've talked to people that went to other schools. And they're like, that's really strange and unusual that you guys would all be friends. And I mean, to this day, uh, five years later, we're, you know, after graduating, so eight years, um, we're still best friends, all of us. Um, And that, I think, salvaged Bryn Mawr for me. Um, 
I remember talking to one of those friends recently and she was like, I remember when you applied to transfer to leave and, you know, we wanted you to be happy. So like, you know, we supported you. But when I didn't get into USC, she was like, I was so happy that you didn't get into USC. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I didn't get in. And I started sophomore year thinking it's okay. I'm just going to apply to transfer again. And sophomore year, I lived with two of my best friends. One of them was the one I just mentioned. And um, we lived in a triple together. And it was like one of the best living experiences I've ever had. Um, And somewhere along that year, I just didn't apply to transfer. I just lost the desire. It was almost like um, I was like, yeah, I'll get to that. I'll do it. And then I, I never did. And, um, you're having a good time. Yeah. I was having, having a good time. I was learning, you know, learning what to partake in, what parts of the weirdness to enjoy and what parts to avoid. Yeah. Um, all the while, uh, it was changing me and opening my eyes to a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, I've met women at that college that have completely expanded the way that I think, uh, and professors, um, all around. It was an entirely new experience for me. Um, and staying there definitely made me the person I am today. I think that that core is that school is at the core of who I am. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I want to hear what you mean by that. I'm, it's occurring to me, this is like a new mini discovery. So you pointed to this decision not to leave mm-hmm. Bryn Mawr as one of the biggest in your life. And mm-hmm. as we were preparing for this, you were like, this is number two. So it, it it was it's a decision that never happened. It kind of just slowly faded, like an option faded, basically. Right. And yet this seems like the biggest junction in your life. I'm thinking about how when we take sharp turns, like in life generally, when when we decide to change something, it's because we're unhappy. Yeah. And you were happy, so you decided not to change anything. Right. And that turn ended up being like the most big and integral decision you could have made. Mm-hmm. Just some, just some musing. So how is it central to your identity that you stayed there? What, like, give me some specifics. Well, I think that um, prior to the school, despite the fact that I grew up in an all-female environment entirely through all stages of academia, it didn't mean anything to me. Like, it was just like, oh, whatever. I'm in a classroom with a bunch of girls. Um, and until I went to Bryn Mawr, I just did not recognize the value of that, the value of open thinking. Also, the diversity at that school was unlike anything I'd had before. I think, you know, when you're an expat and you're going to schools in the expat community, most of those families are pretty wealthy because you're living overseas. And... um your experience, you're having experiences that, you know, are pretty niche. And even then coming back to the U.S., uh, the school that I was at was majority white, wealthy. We had a very small percentage of diversity, uh, both, you know, in terms of, of race and socioeconomic background. Um, and going to Bryn Mawr just really opened my eyes to all of that. It just, I hadn't, I'd lived in a bubble for, yeah. a, you know, despite living all over the world, I had been in a bubble. And, um, the professors had a different way of thinking than any teachers I had been with before. Again, teachers in schools overseas, uh, a lot of them just sort of 
are either following partners overseas or they're 20 something and they're picking up their lives and they're like, I'm going to go teach in Japan. Um, not to say that they didn't care about what they taught or that they weren't good teachers. It was just, you know, like a little bit lax. They were visionaries. Yeah. yeah. There were maybe like two that stood out to me um, that were like that. So, you know, I think that when I look at Bryn Mawr as part of my identity, it's uh, how it's made me think uh, about the world, um, about other people, how it's made me open to other people. I mean, I went there and my first thought was the school's weird as fuck. And I came out of it kind of with a new idea of what it means to be weird and to not necessarily see that as having a negative connotation. Love that. Um, yeah, that definitely bent my mind a little bit to, you know, I see stuff now and I'm like, that's not weird. That's just that person expressing who they are. Wow. And, <laughs> um, I've had this conversation with some people recently about uh, there was a group of girls on campus who like to wear capes and I'm not <laughs> clear as to why. But they were nicknamed capies. Ah. <laughs> and um, we would see them on campus and be like, oh, there go the capies. You know, like it's weird, yeah. but it's kind of like we accept you. Right. And that's, that does seem really formative to right. have like non-judgment yes, built into your day. Exactly. And it was it was beyond any other kind of non-judgment that I experienced before because it was, you know, it transcended a lot of things. It was, you know, I'm not going to judge you if you want to change gender. I'm not going to judge you if, um, you know, you have different thoughts on religion. Because also, this was my first time in a non-religious institution. Mm. Bryn Mawr is not religiously affiliated. Um, it was the first time I met people that thought it was weird that I was Catholic or that I endorsed the Catholic Church, um, which is, I, ha- I had not known up until that point, is a controversial thing to do. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I grew up completely in a Catholic bubble, being yeah. like, this is the main religion and like Whoa. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I knew other, obviously I knew other religions existed. I grew up in Tokyo, so I was surrounded yeah, by yeah. a plethora, but, um, but still it was the first time I'd been challenged. Right. I was definitely being challenged on a lot of different levels going to Bryn Mawr um, of just non-judgment and social acceptance and social awareness. The school is definitely really big about, social awareness yeah it feels to me like women's colleges are at the cutting edge of like thoughts yeah. of like new thoughts i'd agree with that i think that all the seven sisters yeah the ones that you know were all female and are now co-ed but um yeah it's really it's, progressive little bubbles definitely cool uh wow that's a great story that's such a happy ending mm-hmm. um i like to take moments on the show to reflect on like what what in the story so far allowed that to happen? So obviously, if you had remained as a swimmer, if you'd stuck with that life, mm-hmm. that would have dictated where you went to school. Mm-hmm. You said that. Uh, and then there's also kind of this element of chance, like you happen not to get into these schools that you wanted to go to. I think that's a big part of every, not everyone's. Uh, I think in general, the decisions that you you choose, but they don't choose you back, mm-hmm. have these big impacts on our lives. So like that really is what makes our story. Like the things that don't work out. Yeah. Okay. So the next thing that happens or the next big junction you wanted to talk about, I'm curious, we haven't talked about music yet. Like when did that become a big part of your life? Music became a big part of my life uh, around the end of um, my time in Tokyo. So uh, I picked it up. Uh, one of my classmates, um, Justine, who actually 
comes into my life again later, um, was super into music. Uh, her dad worked in the music industry and she was in like our school band and she introduced me to like My Chemical Romance and Evanescence. And, you know, that was a whole Avril Lavigne phase. Um, that was probably in seventh or eighth grade is when I became cognizant of like music as um, an obsession. Mm. And, you know, I was a Beatles fan. I was a Fleetwood Mac fan through my parents. But I had never really, and I went through like the Spice Girls phase, but I had never seen music as an identity uh, mm. per se. And with this kind of punk rock phase I went through with Sex Pistols and The Clash and then Sum 41, Avril Lavigne, that kind of stuff. It was forming part of how I dressed and how, um, how I acted also with swimming. Um, I used music to motivate myself a lot. So before, before a big race, um, or in a car, I was listening to like Eminem and, um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly. Um, green day and stuff like that so it was starting to like weave its way into my life and then we moved to the u.s and i dove head first into all things music i think because again i was trying to find my place i gave up swimming um we were in a new new city i was trying to figure out who i was um as an adolescent and it's like a shortcut Music's yeah it's like oh i can be that person that everyone who listens to this band looks exactly. like exactly yeah um and it was right around the same boston was a great place to get into music because it's so small and um it has some great venues paradise rock club the avalon before it became the house of blues um the great scott middle east it had these really intimate venues however you had to be like 18 to go to a lot of these and i got into music around the time i was 15 or 16 and so I had a really amazing mom and she would chaperone me to these shows and I would show up at the door Aww. and they would say, we can't let you in unless you have a legal guardian. Uh-huh. And they would put giant X's on my, on my back yeah. of my hands and my mom would come with me. Love it. And we'd stay out until like midnight watching these bands together. Aww. Um, and it was a big, I think, bonding experience for both of us, but it was definitely uh, shaped who I was, um, who I was becoming and the things I was interested in. I was hanging out at these clubs with like 20 somethings, um, because I was so passionate about the music. And, um, I just saw a life outside of, you know, I think when you move somewhere, there's a panic of, is this it? Like, is this the place I end up? Is this where I stay? Um, at least for me there was, and especially moving back to Boston where we already had some roots. I was like, Oh God, like is Boston, it is, you know, for the next 10 years or something. And I, I love Boston. I adore it. It's a piece of me, but I did not want to end up there. Right. Um, and so I saw these bands and this lifestyle as a way of, you know, potentially getting out of it. Um, there wasn't much of a scene in my opinion, or at least what I wanted to do, which was go into the music industry. I realized very quickly that I'm not a musician. Hmm. Um, I do play music, but I'm not, a writer, um, I can do, you know, basic guitar stuff, but, um, I just realized that I want to get out of Boston and the hotspots for music are New York or LA, um, which I knew at some point would become a part of my life. Those two cities. Right. Cool. Um, I wish we could get into this a little more. We talked a lot. We, we spent a lot of time on pre 18 or pre 22, <laughs> Uh, and we only have 10 minutes left now or eight even. So I wish, yeah, maybe, maybe 
just after this or some other <laughs> yeah. time, we can get into the whole thing of your career arc and how we ended up working together at Pandora. But I know that the big thing you want to talk about. So I'll fast forward. You loved music. You got into it. You knew that's where you wanted your career to go. Mm-hmm. You ended up working at Pandora. Mm-hmm. And last year, you made the decision or it got offered to you mm-hmm. to move to L.A. from New York. Correct. So let's talk about how you did that. So I, prior to being at Pandora, was at Warner Brothers for Warner Brothers Records for just under two years as an assistant. And I was an assistant to three, sometimes four people. And it was a grind. It was very much similar to Devil Wears Prada and um, like nightmarish at times. And I came to work for Pandora and I was in essentially an assistant role um, there, except, you know, much better bosses, much better culture and environment. Shout out Pandora. You're the best (laughs) place to work like literally ever. Um, And but I did you know, I had aspirations. I had saw my envisioned myself as like a CEO of a big company one day and like powerful female figure in the workforce and um, did not know how the hell I was going to get there except to like just keep pushing and asking for a promotion. Um, and so my bosses, you know, had many conversations with me about my path and like growth and how to get there. Um, and one time we sat down and, and one of my bosses said, you know, I have a uh, we will get this position. We will need someone to fill this position, but it's probably going to have to be in a different office. I can't fill this position in New York. And I realized at that moment that I just had to be willing. If I wanted what I wanted as bad as I did, then I had to be willing to just give something up for it or just make myself flexible and get it. Um, And so I just sort of impulsively was like, well, I've moved on my life. Like I'm happy to move. If you need me to move, I'll move. And we walked out of out of the office that we had this conversation and I was like, oh, shit, did I just like completely change my life right there? Like by being open to that, did I just like make a really big decision without thinking about it? Um, I do a lot of stuff based off gut. Um, Mm. I think all of these decisions, when I was 14, when I was at Bryn Mawr, it's all starts with gut instinct. And then I kind of uh, dissect it in terms of logic and weighing options and all that um and this this one in particular was definitely an impulse and uh but in my gut it felt right and i think i just thought that at some point i had to end up in la um based on the music industry it was i would end up there eventually right um because everyone kind of does fascinating it feels like this it's interesting that you talk about it being a gut instinct and it seems like it definitely was that but it also feels a little bit like this was a decision you were hardwired for yeah like you have the tattoo of the globe on your wrist like moving is central to your identity it's like part of it so it's like you had a disposition toward the or an inclination toward this right how could you say no yeah i do wonder that often too i'm like am i going to continue my life just moving around the thought of staying somewhere for more than four years definitely freaks me out because I've moved every four years typically. Wow. Um, and I get like an itch around the fourth year. I'm like, okay, time to leave. Where am I going? Um, how did it, how did it go? How did this decision, are you, are you happy with it? Yeah. It's only been seven months. I'm 100% happy with it. I don't regret it at all. It's as with any move, it's an adjustment. Um, leaving one place behind and accepting a new place as your place, as the place, is hard, especially as you de- start to form 
communities. Um, you know, like I said at Bryn Mawr, they're all still my best friends. Right. And they're my closest community and they are all based on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so to leave that behind is difficult, but it's also how you grow and how you discover yourself. And um, I've, I'm a big believer in if you're comfortable, then you're not, you're not, you know, ch- you need to challenge yourself to figure out who you are. Um, being comfortable is dangerous to some degree. Interesting. Um, That's a reminder I needed today. Mm-hmm. I love comfort. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about these three decisions and trying to see parallels. And it feels like you're like the most instinctive person I've talked to on this, right? I feel like there's very little, um, very little anxiety surrounding mm-hmm. any of this. Yeah, I'd say that's true. I definitely act off of instinct and, and gut and sometimes not impulse. overthinking it. Not overthinking it. I mean, I, I try to go with the flow, but also, you know, be logical about it and weigh the options. Um, I'm not about to go like skydive or jump off a cliff. Not a skydiver? I mean, maybe. I, feel I don't like want to rule that out. I see you skydiving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot is based on instinct for sure. <sighs> Were it only that everyone could do that. I don't know, man. That's that's the opposite of me. This <laughs> the the reason why I have the show is because I can't do that. <laughs> um, wish it were a teachable skill. Guess it's not. Is there anything? Is there anything else that we skipped? We have two minutes left. Do you think we we got you? We got I, your essence. I think so. I mean, those were all some pretty defining moments. Yeah, I think. Cool. Okay, so it's credits time. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a nonprofit community radio station supported by listeners. So go to the website and make a donation if you want to be nice. Uh, our theme song is by Nation of Language. My theme song. I don't know why I'm saying our. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, is by Nation of Language. They're on Bandcamp or you can check them out on tour. If you're interested in the show or you have a twisty turvy life story that you want to share with me on it, you can email me at asha at radiofreebrooklyn.org or find me on Facebook at uh, Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. I think that's it. Thank you so much for being here with me, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. Ooh, all right. Tune in next week, guys. <laughs>